The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. What they want to do is transfer the money out from bank account to bank account. So taking it from the Maltese bank's accounts and sticking it in another account. For that, they need bank accounts. They need laundering accounts they can wash this money through. So they go back to Big Boss and say, hey, you know, can you help? And Big Boss says, well, no, but I know a man who can. And that man is Hush Puppy, um, who turns out to be uh, an Instagram influencer with something like 2.3 million followers, who's in Dubai and by day is, you know, doing what influencers do, you know, eating in nice restaurants and wearing nice trainers. But by night, it's carrying out various money laundering activities, including, it then emerges, for the North Koreans. And that leads you to, uh, to Hush Puppy. So these fascinating characters, this goes back to what Gene said, you know, the North Koreans are looking around the world for accomplices and people to work with. And frankly, they're finding some really weird people, but weird but useful people, because they do help them steal quite a lot of money. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for April 21st, 2023. Over the past decade, North Korea has taken on an exceptional global role, a sovereign state believed to be at the head of an unprecedented international criminal network, one that is particularly active in cyberspace where the North Korea-backed Lazarus Group is believed to have been responsible for several of the largest and most audacious incidents of hacking, ransomware, and outright theft of the modern era. Journalists Gene Lee and Jeff White have been documenting the Lazarus Group's activities for the BBC. The second season of their podcast, The Lazarus Heist, is now available. I sat down with them to discuss how this second season built on the first, what the Lazarus Group has been up to, and what it all tells us about North Korea's position in the world. They also gave us permission to share a preview of the new season with you, which we'll play after our discussion. It's the Lawfare Podcast for April 21st, The Lazarus Heist, Season 2, with Gene Lee and Jeff White. Jeff and Gene, it's it's really great to have you back on the podcast again. The last time we had you on, we were talking about season one of your phenomenal podcast, really one of my favorite podcasts I've listened to of the last few years, The Lazarus Heist. Uh, and we now have at least the beginnings of season two out and about in the world on the BBC website and other podcatchers, although you get a few a sneak peek of a few additional episodes if you go to the BBC website. Tell us a little bit about how you went about conceptualizing this season. Last season, you all really focused on kind of building backwards from the WannaCry ransomware incident, contextualizing, going back to see the Lazarus Group, this group of North Korea-associated hackers and their involvement in everything from the Sony hack to ransomware, and then really use that to spin off and explore all sorts of interesting intersections with the story from, you know, uh, the history of 
Korean Korean uh, expatriates living in Japan and other parts of the world uh, and their relationship with North and South Korea to different aspects of cybercrime um, and different aspects of governmental activity. So given that really broad scope and interesting story of the first season, where did you guys want to pick up with this season? How are you structuring it similarly or dis- differently? Well, I think um, in a way it was fairly easy. The, the proposition for me for, for season two was fairly easy in that it was just what did they do next? You know, we left them in 2017. What happens next? And usefully for us, uh, unfortunately for a lot of people in the world, the North Korean hackers haven't stopped according to the accusations against them. In fact, they've they've doubled down and, and hit even more targets in even more places in even more innovative uh, and unusual ways. Um, so we really start in immediately, almost in 2018, immediately after that WannaCry attack, and we look at targeting of ATMs and making ATMs spew out money. We look at targeting of cryptocurrency, um, and obviously Gene will talk to this. But you know, in, in the subsequent years, we've not just seen increased cyber activity. We've seen, and this is related, uh, increased military activity around around nuclear weapons and missiles. And I would add that. Jeff, I'm surprised that you say that it was fairly straightforward because I feel like with <laughs> season one and season two, we struggled a bit with our timeline. I think, you know, I I let Jeff take the lead in deciding which cyber attacks we're going to focus on. And I think in season one, you had a very clear idea that we wanted to focus on the Bangladesh bank heist, which was a the core, really, the spine of of the narrative. And yet we ended up deciding to go a little bit farther back in history, further back in history and look at the Sony hack. This is season one. And likewise, I think we do a little bit of a turn in season two. You have a strong idea of which cyber attacks are the most important for us to look at. And then I come in and say, but I think we need to look at these certain elements that were happening, things that were happening in North Korea to help us understand. So it's been Hopefully, it sounds seamless when everyone listens to season two, but but it, it and it does start with we go back to May 2017, which is where we left off with season one. Uh, but it was, I would say, kind of a challenge to try to decide which elements we were going to bring into the season. This was true in season one and true in season two, and hopefully, we've picked the right elements. Well, Jeff, you, you've already hinted us at us kind of the fairly dramatic introductory narrative that you hit at in your first episode. And that's this phenomenon, this practice of jackpotting, where you, or some people, not you specifically, uh, (laughs) hackers, uh, have occasionally learned how to dramatically make ATMs spit out cash. You describe how this was done at one or actually several, if I recall correctly, kind of black hat conferences in the early 2010s or so. And that then feeds into what seems to be, at least from the first few episodes I've heard, the kind of hub heist, the main heist, which is this cosmos heist. Tell us a little bit about this practice and, and how it becomes comes to play a role in this larger uh, heist that gets executed in, I believe, 2018, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, targeting ATMs and cash points, it makes perfect sense for a hacker, doesn't it? It's, it's where the money is, um, to quote the famous bank robber. But the problem with hacking cash points is, as you said, this has been demonstrated at conferences, notably by Barnaby Jack at the Black Hat conference in Las Vegas, which uh, covering the podcast. The problem is doing it at scale. I mean, yeah, you can go up to cash points and you can try and trick them and you'll get whatever's in the cash point and that that might be in an average ATM, a few thousand, maybe a few tens of thousands, a few hundreds of thousands, if you're really lucky. But to make it work at scale, 
you need to do that for multiple cash points. And that's always been the issue. And the attack we outline, not to give too many spoilers about the, the episodes, but the attack we outline is where the, the hackers, the Lazarus group, were accused of going after Cosmos Cooperative Bank in India, getting inside the bank, and then hijacking the bank's ATM approval software. So basically any ATM withdrawal that comes into Cosmos Bank from any cash point around the world where somebody's trying to withdraw money using a Cosmos card, the hackers can now intercept it and automatically approve it, which, you know, for that scale issue of being able to do these hacks at scale is really important. The problem then is you've then got the issue of, well, well you, you can do that for cash points around the world. So who do you get in different countries around the world to go to the cash points and to make those withdrawals? So there's a higher order problem that the hackers encounter, which is how do we get people in countries around the world to go to cash points and make withdrawals? And of course, the answer to that is an even more wild and weird story, which we go into in the next couple of episodes in the podcast. But that's broadly speaking how jackpotting works and how people have at least tried to do it at scale. So, Gene, this big heist, this Cosmos heist that forms such a central kind of recurring theme in their narrative that you all carve out in this episode, tell us a little bit about how it fits into the North Korean strategy. Why is this a move that we think it's widely expected or suspected, I should say, the Lazarus Group was, was involved in organizing? And what does it tell us a little bit about North Korea's kind of national strategy and how this fits within it? Overall, I would say looking at their campaign of cyber attacks, jackpotting being among them, it's very clear that the North Koreans have been plotting a strategy for years on how to take advantage of vulnerabilities in technology and ways to make money that help them get around sanctions. So we should keep in mind that North Korea has been very aggressive with testing ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons. And every single one of these tests is a violation of UN Security Council resolutions and carries with it the risk of even more sanctions. And these sanctions are designed to restrict and limit North Korea's ability to bring in luxury goods and to make hard, the hard currency that it needs to both support the regime and to support the nuclear program. And so I do think that we should consider that they've been taking this into consideration as they've been plotting the acceleration of their program, the nuclear program, and looking for those ways around uh, sanctions. 2018 is so interesting because as these attacks are happening, of course, I was in the middle of just focusing on the diplomacy that was flourishing or blossoming between North Korea and South Korea and North Korea and the United States. And so I think it's very interesting to consider that all of this careful planning and plotting was happening at a time when North Korea was engaged in diplomacy. And so you'll, if you're very focused on the diplomacy and thinking that, oh, North Korea's coming out of the cold and they're, and they're willing to engage. Well, actually, what we're trying, what we want to show you is that they were still continuing some of this activity. The other thing I think that's interesting about jackpotting is, as Jeff mentioned, you, it required having a network of people all around the world. So this was at a time when they still had an overseas network. And as we'll describe in season two, some of that network does come down a bit uh, because sanctions are designed to kind of tamper and hinder the North Koreans from relying on that overseas network. To me, I found that jackpotting is that, I mean, I think that Barnaby Jack, the, you know, that whole episode is, is transfixing. 
And you can imagine being a North Korean thinking, maybe watching a video of him and thinking, how can I get that? How can I do that on a massive scale? Uh, but I think it is very interesting for me because I always think about the fact that they don't have ATMs in North Korea. So anything, a- any of these technologies, it's hard for us to imagine, for, hard for me to imagine the North Koreans even conceiving of these crazy schemes because they just don't have that technology on an everyday level in North Korea. So for me, it's also interesting to think about what it, part of their strategy also requires them to send these people abroad to learn how we bank and to even come up with this scheme and then to carry it out. So that part of it is very interesting to me as well and requires us to think about them, where they come from, where they are, and and how that shapes what their strategy is. So a big theme you hit on in your first few episodes and I think this carries over from season one in a lot of ways, is the fertile environment in which North Korea is operating, in that they rely upon a lot of external actors, external opportunities, and these exist out in the world as different actors they can engage with, facilitate, cooperate through in different types of activities, whether it's through the dark web or whether it's through a variety of other channels. I think in the first few episodes, this really comes out most distinctly in these two figures with with kind of very distinctive names and labels, Hush Puppy and Big Boss. (laughs) Jeff, can you tell us a little bit about who these figures are? Maybe we'll start with Hush Puppy uh, and then shift to Big Boss. I think Hush Puppy is kind of that's that's the chain of causation in a way in this uh, uh, the way I think of it. it tell us who these guys are and what they perhaps more importantly what they tell us about the global system in which North Korea is operating and what they represent in terms of the factors enabling this sort of conduct on North Korea's part yeah yeah that's fair enough that's fair enough I, I would uh, I would correct you I think it's probably better to start with big boss and then hush puppy I defer to you your expertise on this one <laughs> <laughs> big boss is fascinating so when the North Koreans decide to do these uh, jackpotting attacks on cash points and ATMs it's not just Cosmos Cooperative Bank in India by the way there were others uh, that they try quite a few others actually some of which aren't in the news they need as we've said networks of people around the world to go to the ATMs and make those withdrawals well big boss provides that. He is uh, a character on the dark web who's got a fairly long history in fraud and credit card abuse. And he makes his skills available to anybody who will pay. And he has a network of what he calls runners or what are called runners out on the street, i.e. money mules who can go to the cash points. But also he can help with the cloning of the cards because in order to put cards into ATMs and make withdrawals, you need basically counterfeit cash cards. So Big Boss helps with the creation of those. These are his sort of skill set. So the North Koreans are accused of working with Big Boss uh, on, on several occasions, several jobs. Goes pretty well. The problem is it gets quite ungainly, that that system of you know having people all around the world taking out wads of money, and then you've got to get the money back somehow. And So for one of the jobs the North Koreans are accused of doing, they want to do what's called a SWIFT transfer. SWIFT, as listeners of season one will know, is the interbank financial transfer system send money from one financial institution to another. So the North Koreans hack into a bank in uh, Malta, is the accusation, and they are going to transfer out some millions of of dollars worth of money. They're not going to do the cash point thing they did before. What they want to do is transfer the money out from bank account to bank account. So taking it from the Maltese bank's accounts and sticking it in another account. For that, they need 
bank accounts. They need laundering accounts they can wash this money through. So they go back to Big Boss and say, hey, you know, can you help? And Big Boss says, well, no, but I know a man who can. And that man is Hush Puppy, um, who turns out to be uh, an Instagram influencer with something like 2.3 million followers, who's in Dubai and by day is, you know, doing what influencers do, you know, eating in nice restaurants and wearing nice trainers. But by night is carrying out various money laundering activities, including, it then emerges, for the North Koreans. And that leads you to, uh, to Hush Puppy. So these fascinating characters, this goes back to what Gene said, you know, the North Koreans are looking around the world for accomplices and people to work with. And frankly, they're finding some really weird people, but weird, but useful people because they do help them steal quite a lot of money. Uh, I won't do spoiler alert on, on, on the full thing, but there's a, there's a, there's a sad ending for, for Big Boss and Hush Puppy, but uh, you'll have to listen to the series season two to find that out. Sad for who? <laughs> sad. Sad, well, yeah, sad, sad for, the, for the men involved, I suppose you could say, yeah. Well, Gene, tell us a little bit about what these sorts of external facilitators mean for North Korea. I mean, how you mentioned uh, and highlight the fact that North Korea really relies on being able to send people in the outside world, into the outside world to develop their strategy, identify weak points, understand how to engage and challenge, um, you know, digital weaknesses and vulnerabilities in various types of, of networks in the outside world. And these people seemed like a similar reliance on them. How replaceable are they? How effective is it bringing down these points of pressure? And is that the main focus of the law enforcement strategy in combating these North Korean efforts? Or have we seen that strategy shift to different points of focus over time? So when it comes to sanctions, these sanctions, both UN Security Council resolution associated sanctions and U.S. Treasury sanctions have been in place for a long time. But I think it's only in the last few years that we've seen them evolve. And I should say that we've seen U.S. Treasury sanctions evolve to take into account these suspected or alleged hackers. And before that, it was really reliant on trying to stop the flow of um, money, so really attacking banking and also to stop people from moving. So one of the key sanctions from the United Nations that we saw was the order to UN member nations to send back the North Koreans who are working in their countries. Um, so that would mean that there would be, hopefully they would say, um, cutting off the flow of hard currency, the money that the North Koreans are making and sending back to the regime, and also trying to send them home so they're not out in the world. Well, for one, I think the... COVID pandemic meant that the North Koreans had, they shut down their border in January 2020. So a lot of the North Koreans who were overseas did not go back home. They just were not able to get back home. So they're still out there and they're still operating. Uh, but also now we've got this whole other realm, cyberspace, that isn't bound by borders. And that's something that the North Koreans have certainly taken advantage of. Uh, I think I just thought of this when we're talking about Hush Puppy, who's an Instagram influencer. They can reach people like Big Boss and Hush Puppy um, through the internet. They're not going to know what an Instagram influencer is if they're in Pyongyang. So they need not they they may have this opportunity that the dark web and cyberspace offer in terms of connecting with people, but they kind of need to be outside the country and in the world to understand the kind of greed that somebody like Hush Puppy is, is motivated by, the kind of wealth, the kind of notoriety, because that is not something that they are exposed to inside North Korea. So it requires both of those things. So you have these young men who, and as far as we know, they're young men. I haven't um, heard of any of these suspected hackers being women, but 
being out there for years uh, in the world, experiencing life very not I shouldn't say similar to ours because they're still under very strict regulations, but seeing how our world works, both in terms of the internet, influencers, banking, all of that, seeing how we live, work, socialize, and becoming very skillful in that. Now, I think that that is a big investment that the North Koreans are making in these people because they're relying on them to understand how we operate. But also, these young, these people cannot get back home right now, as far as we know. And so they're under a lot of pressure to try to make money to support themselves, as well as to make money for the regime. Now, how to stop them? I mean, we, we get into that later into the <laughs> season. Uh, but clearly, sanctions, if that's going to be a tool that governments or international organizations use to try to... Uh, stop this activity or slow it down is going to have to take into account how um, all of these, not only the North Korean thinking has evolved, their strategy has evolved, technology is evolving. And we're starting to see that the very start of it. But it's like Jeff and I always call this like a cat and mouse game. It is so hard because they are so invested. North Koreans are so invested in this and they're so clever. They have the time and the resources to really focus on finding finding that vulnerability. Somebody else I spoke to recently called it whack-a-mole. And that's the challenge that we face is that they're always going to be looking for a way around the rules that are imposed on them. Just want to, if it's okay, I just want to come in on, on the, the issue about <clears throat> Hush Puppy being an Instagram influencer and ha- how peculiar the North Koreans would have found that. I've been doing a lot of thinking about this. And I, I do think that I'm not sure whether the North Koreans knew the real identities of the people they were getting involved with, Big Boss and Hush Puppy. Big Boss perhaps a bit more because they were being a bit more touch with him, but Hush Puppy, I'm not, I'm not sure what they would have known. But what's certainly true is that when he got arrested, uh, sorry, slight spoiler alert, but when things went wrong for Hush Puppy, the North Koreans would have found out about him and who he was. And as, as Jean says, I mean, I just cannot imagine what the conversation in Pyongyang would have been like. <laughs> this guy we were working with, he was a who? He was a what now? He did he did what on the, wow, because I don't think they actually would have known about his whole other life as an Instagram influencer. I think they knew he was a money launderer, but but that was as far as it went. He, he is such a fascinating figure in this whole narrative, uh, undoubtedly, um, and really underscores a kind of recurring theme that you all hit on, which is the kind of unforced error nature of uh, that has led law enforcement be able to capture and identify some of these people, not entirely, but that often seems to play a significant role, um, which is an interesting kind of recurring phenomenon, but probably not that unusual in, in law enforcement, a lot of other contexts. Gene, you also, in I think it was the fourth episode of the season, I think it's the last one that's publicly available at the time of recording, you then shift focus to a story that's really different from the cybercrime focus, and that is the Otto Warmbier story. I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with, which is a really horrible story about a University of Virginia college student um, who was uh, held captive, essentially, uh, after visiting North Korea for allegedly trying to steal something, um, and then ultimately ended up becoming very sick and ultimately dying shortly after returning to the United States. A really heart-wrenching story that I think a lot of people follow very closely. And then you tie it, though, into a broader history, talking about USS Pueblo, a fascinating historical anecdote that I hadn't heard of before that, that I thought was really compelling in that episode. Tell us a little bit about the relationship you see between Warmbier and the Pueblo and how that narr- the narrative they support and the what they reflect about North Korea's strategy, how it intersects with the cybercrime activities that is ultimately the focus of the podcast. It may seem 
like a bit of a stretch to include those stories, but I do feel that it's important for us to look at these cyber activities in the context of North Korea's overall strategy, particularly Kim Jong-un's strategy. I think we need to make sure that we are looking at these and understanding where North Korea is today, who Kim Jong-un is, what it is he's trying to accomplish, because this cyber activity, we would say, is being done in the name of, in the service of Kim Jong-un. So who is Kim Jong-un? What does he want? What is he thinking? And that was why I wanted to go back to 2017. So again, we left off season one in May of 2017. And so in my head, I was thinking, okay, we need to start and remember where North Korea was, where we were. I mean, I was actually in North Korea at the time. uh, But what was happening in May of 2017? And that year, 2017, was such a, for North Korea watchers, for those of us who pay close attention to what's happening on the Korean Peninsula, we call it the year of fire and fury. It was an intense year started really that the 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 testing uh started in 2016 so in 2016 and 2017 things became very very tense around the Korean peninsula because North Korea started Kim Jong-un started ordering a ramping up of testing and i think it's really important to recount that year and some of the circumstances including uh the Otto Warm beer story to understand the kind of tension that was building between North Korea and the United States, and to consider how that may have shaped their motivation in terms of what they wanted to do militarily, and then how they were going to pay for that. Now, I mentioned the Pueblo because I do think that it's always important to remember that the United States and North Korea are still technically at war. And this is something that often gets overlooked. You know, the North Koreans, the United States signed a a truce, a ceasefire in 1953 uh, to sort of bring the fighting of the Korean War uh, to a close, but they never signed a peace treaty. And I mention this because this informs so much of the justification that the North Koreans claim for needing to defend themselves. Uh, So I think it's important to look at some of those uh, incidents that highlight and define the fact that the North Koreans play up this tension. And I think that this is something that any American going to North Korea has to keep in mind, that every time we go there as an American, we are at risk of being, and I won't say prisoner of war, although there are prisoners of war in North Korea uh, from South Korea, but that we're always at risk because they see us as the enemy. And it's a really painful time for me to be recounting this when we have a Wall Street Journal reporter detained in Russia accused of espionage, which is something I was always very concerned about for myself and any American who's in North Korea. And of course, Otto was one of those Americans who was detained at a time when perhaps the North Koreans felt it might be useful to have an American in detention. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent 
potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. So this all raises one of the questions that I think kind of hovers around both the first season, this new season, which is that you have a unique focus on North Korea and the Lazarus Group in particular, but because you follow and chase these streams uh, and intersections with other stories, with other narratives, you get a much bigger sense of the picture of the political context for certain of these actions, of the facilitating context that's allowing some of these criminal activities to undertake. It's what makes it a really compelling listen in a lot of ways, because it is not just one story, but in fact, a bunch of stories being woven together around one thread. But that kind of raises the question to me, Jeff, You know, to what extent is the story you're telling, the main narrative, the North Korea narrative, to what extent is it really just a representative of a much bigger universe? And to what extent is North Korea really a unique actor? Obviously, we know ransomware is a tool used by other criminal groups, other state actors as well. Russia has a kind of notorious relationship with ransomware groups. But is, is North Korea really exceptional um, by an order of magnitude from these other actors? Or is this story much more representative of a sort of thing that's happening at a much larger scale involving other actors in the global criminal cybercrime uh, vicinity as well? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, Certainly, as far as the UK is concerned, I imagine the US and other countries will be pretty similar. Um, North Korea ranks as one of the top four threats in cyber terms to the UK, according to our intelligence agencies. So China and Russia generally interchangeably in numbers one and two, and North Korea and Iran interchangeably in numbers three and four, which, you know, for a country where most people can't access the internet, that's quite a position for North Korea to end up in. I always describe it to people as a bit like Doncaster Rovers turning up in the Premier League, which obviously is a joke for people who understand British football. And a joke that's even funnier when you realise how little I understand about British football. North Korea is a really fascinating example to watch, though, because it combines two things that are really important to understand about cyber. It combines nation-state threat, 
which as you say, loads of co- countries have got hackers, they're all doing it, but it combines that with organized financial crime. For, for all of the reasons Gene's outlined, all of these sanctions, trying to evade sanctions, get money into the country, North Korea is doing financial crime in a way that most government's hackers aren't doing. That's the accusation uh, against them. And so you get a sort of you know, for cybersecurity journalists, a tech journalist like myself, you get a sort of marvellous two for one with North Korea. You can look at state hacking and nation state hacking from a North Korean perspective. You can also look at organised financial crime and cybercrime from a, a North Korean perspective. They bring the two together. <clears throat> what is interesting about North Korea in terms of how skilled they are and how good they are, clearly they are they are very good. I mean, they're accused of getting into lots of different, different organisations. What's interesting is we know about that. We, we found out about it. They've left the evidence and the trails that lead to the accusations against them. You don't see that so much with, with particularly China. They're much better at covering their tracks. The North Koreans tend to leave telltale traces. And I think part of that is because they know they can't get arrested at the end of the day. They're in Pyongyang. You know, There's no extradition treaty between Pyongyang and Washington. <clears throat> so they feel safer to kind of do the hacks and then get caught for them, as it were. But secondly, I think there is an element of thinking, well, if people know that we do these hacks, it, it increases our sort of presence and prowess on the world stage, our kudos on the world stage. So in a way, it's like the, you know, the art thief who leaves their signia, insignia scrawled on the wall when they've stolen the painting. You, you kind of want people to know who, you know, you did it and who you, who you are. So I think there's an element of that. So in terms of how they are and how they're positioned in terms of global, you know, cyber activity, that's, that's roughly what I'd say. So Jeff thinks that they're very happy about our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do wonder. I do wonder. And there is, I mean, you know, Gene, I want to ask you about this, which we've not talked about before. People have asked me, do you think that senior leadership in North Korea and indeed Kim Jong-un, the leader, are aware of the podcast? I don't know whether that's something, something I've mulled on. I don't know what you think about that. Oh, absolutely. So for the North Korean diplomats who are abroad, uh, their job is to monitor what we do, to read everything that's being done about North Korea. So they're certainly paying attention. Uh, so they're certainly aware. And I, I do wonder uh, if they are. there's a part of them that doesn't have a sense of pride that we're calling them so aggressive and so skillful and clever and all of this, even as they're angry that we're divulging and making, shedding light on on how they're operation works and what their strategy might be. Uh, so it's probably a little bit of both, which I think is usually the case for North Korean diplomats abroad, uh, because they are out in the world. Uh, they're they're both proud to represent their country, but also learning something in the process that they may not have known. I was going to just jump and add to what Jeff was saying earlier by saying that, you know, one of the things that I hope we do with the podcast is to show that we can't just be looking at the cyber attacks on their own as a the technical prowess and just that tech issue. Uh, when it comes to the world we operate in, in the policy world, if we want to figure out how to restrain the North Koreans from building nuclear weapons, we have to include cyber in, in discussions around strategy when it comes to trying to stop the flow of money. That hasn't been done so far. It's a bit of a blind spot in the policy community, I think, because people tend to get a little bit overwhelmed by by cyber. Just the mention of cyber can turn a lot of people off. So what I'm hoping that we do with a podcast is break down some of these concepts and and make it clear that this is not something that only cybersecurity experts need to be aware of, but that we in the policy community need to be aware and well-versed in as well if we want to think about strategy when it comes to North Koreans, if we want to think about diplomacy, if we want to think about how to partner with other countries, but also to the general public. 
that we're talking about forms of um, phishing and vulnerabilities that every single person faces because every single one of us receives these emails. And so for I, I, if we can get everyone to think twice about clicking on a link or responding to what seems like a, a strange Facebook interaction or a suspicious LinkedIn profile, then we've done our job. Uh, but I just did want to mention since you do have a policy audience to just make that push that we think about these as not just a, not just tech issues, but something that needs to be incorporated in discussions about North Korea and about these countries more generally. Well, that, that actually leads into my next question for you quite nicely, Jean. I mean, how much is this podcast, the, the theme of this podcast, this focus on cybercrime, while you, while you do, you know, dip into other realms of North Korean kind of I think what a lot of people in the international community view as malicious activity, hostage taking in the Otto Warmbier case being kind of the the leading example in this season, at least so far. You know, how big a chunk of what North Korea is trying to do in the world is the cybercrime agenda? How much of a keystone to its broader strategy is it? And in that sense, is it the key to unlocking to some extent a broader strategy against North Korea or an essential part of it? Or is this really a, a kind of separate strategy that maybe can be addressed independent of the rest of the Korea. It sounds like you you think the former, but I'm curious as to why. I do think that if we want to understand who Kim Jong-un is, uh, that we need to look at his broader strategy around science and technology. And I say that as a journalist who was there on the ground before he came to power, while he was being groomed. And I was there in the early years of his leadership. And so I saw, I was there, I was subject to all the propaganda. So I was there seeing the building blocks that he was putting into place. And so much of it, he's a millennial, so much of it was around science and technology. And that we should acknowledge that there's some good in that in the sense that, you know, for North Korea to develop and join the international world in ways that everybody, so many other people, most people in the world are engaged is fantastic. And yet we should also acknowledge and understand that there's a nefarious side to the strategy as well, that every strategy in North Korea has a domestic purpose and uh, perhaps uh, a foreign policy agenda. And in this case, it involves ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons. So I personally think that we need to look at this and, and, and see how it fits into a broader strategy if we want to understand North Korea, if we want to understand Kim Jong-un and try to gauge which way they're headed and and how to stop that program. So, yeah, I mean, I think that one of my one of my frustrations is that it tends to be seen and sidelined as just a tech issue. But my push, my my emphasis is always like this is this is so woven into the core of his strategy. Uh, Kim Jong-un's strategy. And that's what we need to understand if we want to put this in a bigger context when it comes to North Korea and its ambitions. So we right now can hear the first four episodes, but obviously that's less than half of the coming season, I believe. What else do we have to look forward to? What is over the horizon for folks who tune in this week? What can they look forward to the remaining episodes? Are there any highlights that you all would particularly urge us to listen out for coming down the pike? Uh, Jeff, let me start with you. Again, not to try and give too many spoilers away for season two, but it'd be no surprise, I think, to your listeners that um, we look at cryptocurrency and North Korea's attempts, the accusations against it to target the cryptocurrency industry. Most cyber criminals are 
crypto makes a lot of sense um, for a lot of reasons. It is the, frankly, the soft underbelly of the financial system at the moment. There are vast amounts of money sloshing about in crypto. I mean, we interviewed people at companies and crypto companies and, and say, well, how much money are you, you know, you're dealing with? And it's in the billions, you know, and these are companies you've never heard of. There is money sloshing about. They're much less protected than banks, partly because the regulation is not there. So again, as a cyber criminal, makes sense to sort of target them. And to go back to the points we've touched on about sanctions, particularly genes covered about sanctions, moving crypto around, large parts of it don't move through the traditional financial system. And so as a sort of sanctions evading mechanism, you know, it's a really fertile piece of territory for, for countries like North Korea to be exploiting. So no surprises, we go into crypto. If you're not sure about crypto and don't really understand it, don't worry, we will talk you through it. Uh, and also there are some amazing twists and turns, notably the story of the Pyongyang crypto currency conference which happened which is an absolutely uh, uh crazy story so that's that's yet to come in the podcast and i will add that i did get to speak to a former north korean diplomat who really shed light on how the overseas network works in the middle east and that was, you know, he's a fascinating person, obviously, provide a lot of interesting detail. We couldn't share everything from his story, but I hope that listeners enjoy hearing from a North Korean's perspective how this all looked, how this all felt. Uh, he has some amazing stories. And that was important to me to make sure that we we treat the North Koreans like they are real human beings and not just these hidden people lurking in the shadows because they are among us and they are interacting with us, whether we know it or not. Um, we also, I really also enjoyed speaking to a hockey player who played on the first United Korean women's hockey team at the Pyeongchang Olympics in South Korea. So that was a fun interview as well. And we have more coming up. Uh, we've got some experts talking about where all this money is going, which I think is the episode designed to scare everybody into thinking about where the cryptocurrency <laughs> is headed. Well, we will have that to look forward to. I know I will be looking out for these highlights uh, as I keep listening to season two. Um, but for now, we are out of time for this discussion. But thank you so much for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast, Gene Lee, Jeff White. Thanks for having us. Great. Thank you. Now, as promised, here is a preview from Season 2, Episode 1 of The Lazarus Heist, which is entitled Jackpotting. Mumbai, India. It's the 14th of August 2018, a humid and sluggish Tuesday. Outside, traffic calls along in the afternoon haze. Inside one of the city's police stations, Inspector General Brijesh Singh is taking a quick break from fighting crime, because tomorrow is a big day for his team. 15th of August is our Independence Day here. In police, we celebrate it. It's a formal occasion where we, we hold our parades and on the VIPs gather all kinds of units from army to navy to police to paramilitary. Everybody participates. It's a great day for us. So the day before, you, you're polishing your shoes and shining your buttons and that kind of thing? <laughs> I guess. So not exactly a good time for Bujesh to get news of a major crime. पुणे के कॉस्मोस बैंक में साइबर अटैक से छियानवे करोड़ की लूट हुई है बैंक के वीजा क्रेडिट कार्ड से 21 देशों में छियानवे करोड़ का ट्रांजैक्शन हुआ सभी ट्रांजैक्शन स्ट्रेंजली गॉट टू नो ऑफ द कॉस्मोस बैंक फ्रॉम द टीवी एक्चुअली वन ऑफ माई यू नो जूनियर्स केम रनिंग टू मी एंड शेट दैट लुक 
there's something running on TV where we are saying that uh, there has been a some kind of cyber attack on a bank in Pune. The bank in the news is the Cosmos Cooperative Bank. It's one of India's largest banks. It's headquartered in Pune in Maharashtra state, and that is Brajesh's beat. Much as I love podcasting, I really wish we could show you a video interview with Brajesh. He's got a piercing gaze and impressively thick moustache. He was once described by an online magazine as Mumbai's answer to a Bruce Willis action hero. Oh, and he's also written a political thriller called Quantum Siege. At the time of this attack, he was heading up Maharashtra's cybercrime unit. And that's where he is when he starts hearing these strange news reports. And we were very surprised because by the time nobody had uh, actually informed us. So <laughs> it is ironical that we came to know of this uh, not from our own sources, from our intelligence, but from television. So Brajesh stops polishing his parade shoes and makes a few calls to the bank. What he hears worries him so much, he decides to ditch the festivities and get on the road. And then I decided to leave for Pune. Pune is like 150 kilometers from Mumbai. Since it seemed to be such a big attack, I decided to go there to uh, supervise the investigation personally. Pune, population 7.5 million. It's a huge industrial centre, famous for its car industry. It's known as India's Motor City. Rajesh makes his way to Cosmos HQ, a modern 12-storey steel and glass complex, to meet the bank's distraught staff. They were all, like, shattered. They didn't uh, exactly know how to respond to this. A strange tale unfolds. The previous Saturday, 11th of August, when not too many people were in the office, urgent messages started to arrive. There were messages from Visa US regarding abnormal transactions, the sharp increase in transaction during one hour, and they were alerting us to go through about the genuineness of these transactions. This is Miland Carley, chairman of the bank. If you've listened to season one, what he's saying is probably sounding eerily familiar. A bank in South Asia suddenly getting urgent messages about suspicious transactions. It's what alerted the central bank of Bangladesh to the attempted billion-dollar hack that we covered in season one. But this time, it's a different story. And it's going to lead us down a very different and even more surprising labyrinth of rabbit holes. This time, the calls are coming from Visa, one of the world's largest card payments companies. And they're calling from the US to say, hey, you might want to take a look at some suspicious ATM withdrawals connected to Cosmos bank cards. Visa says they can see thousands of demands flooding in for large amounts of cash. So Melin's team look into it, but when they do, things don't quite add up. When they said the number of transactions and the value of the transaction is abnormal, we tried to check it at our end. But surprisingly, there were no abnormal transactions at our end. This continued for about half an hour. They were cautioning us and we were reverting back that there are no such transactions. The bank staff should be able to see these ATM withdrawal requests coming through on their computers, but they can't. Everything looks normal. 30 minutes later, 
they authorize Visa to stop all transactions from Cosmos bank cards just to be safe. But that half hour would turn out to be extremely costly. Those messages from Visa were just the first warning signs of a giant, well-coordinated attack. The next day, Sunday, Visa shares the full list of suspect transactions with the bank. Which were 12,000 transactions. 12,000 transactions. That's 12,000 separate jackpotting incidents from different ATMs. Police Inspector General Prajesh Singh can hardly believe what he's hearing. In terms of Indian money, 94 crore rupees had gone, some $14 million. In a single case, it was a huge, huge loss to the bank. He starts to pick over the traces of what is, effectively, a digital crime scene. The hackers had done their best to cover their tracks. They tried to wipe the data on the bank's computers. But investigators had managed to find some information among the wreckage, which gave a clue as to how and where the hackers got in in the first place. There was some initial compromise through spear phishing, very targeted emails were sent. The phishing emails arrived in employees' inboxes and said something like, you have won a prize, click to claim it. It's an age-old trick for computer hackers, this. But those dodgy emails are still their weapon of choice because, depressingly, they still work. As they did at Cosmos, once an employee opened an attached file, their prize turned out to be a virus that took hold of their machine and quickly spread through the bank's networks. Somehow, this intrusion had allowed the hackers to co-opt the bank's systems from the inside. So it was basically a very well-thought-of scheme. It seems that uh, the attacker had very good knowledge of banking systems. The attacker had very good knowledge of banking systems. Sounds like someone we know, right? Indeed it does, yes. But at this point, Bridgesh is still very far from working out who's behind the attack. And he can't immediately see how it was done. But he does get hold of some very useful info from inside the bank. We then got the data of withdrawals. Then we found clusters that these are happening in particular areas. He can see the precise locations of the cash points where dodgy withdrawals have been made. Quite a few of them were close by. In Maharashtra state, dozens of ATMs had been targeted. Rajesh starts to realize the scale of the crime he's dealing with. This heist required a lot of people to make all these withdrawals, a big gang, and they're very well organized. We were very amazed. We were not aware of a money mule network like this. By locating the cash points, Rajesh can now get hold of CCTV footage from them, showing the exact moment the dodgy cash withdrawals are made. He watches back the tapes. There are dozens of different men, money mules, seemingly in their 30s and 40s, casually dressed in T-shirts and jeans. They walk up to the cash points, stick in the cards and stuff the cash into bags. And Prajesh is watching footage of it happening. Sounds like an amazing lead, right? Video footage of the thieves in action. But of course, they know they're on camera, so... They try and hide from the CCTV camera. They try to wear caps. They try to cover their mouths. They try and disguise their appearances. Prajesh is going to have his work cut out finding these guys because the story's about to get even wilder. As the police and banks teams investigate, they realise the full scale of what's happened. And it turns out these withdrawals didn't just take place in India. This is an international jackpotting spree. Somehow, criminals pulled off over 12,000 jackpotting attacks at ATMs in 28 different countries. 
And what makes this even more astonishing is the timing. All these withdrawals took place simultaneously in a time window of just two hours, 13 minutes. And you've got to realise these 28 countries are spread across multiple time zones. India, Canada, Bulgaria, the UK, the United Arab Emirates, Turkey, Japan, Russia, the United States. The attack happened in the afternoon in India, but the dead of night in America, breakfast time in the UK, hackers have managed to compromise hundreds of ATMs and coordinate an army of money mules to jackpot those machines at exactly the same time. It's an extraordinary global flash mob of crime. How do you coordinate such an international attack? How do you make it work on so many continents simultaneously? And perhaps equally importantly, who's running it? Well, months before the attack, thousands of miles from India, a British tech company got a sniff that something dodgy was about to go down. They had a fair idea who was behind it. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. In addition, be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for our extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com slash lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. This podcast was edited by Jim Patcha Howell. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.